Thank you, Joseph. Good morning. Did you get some extra sleep? <laughs> I set all the clocks ahead, one hour. <clears throat> so when I went to bed at 10.30, it said 11.30. <clears throat> but I thought, if I go to bed at 10.30, then I'll get up early because I wanted to get to the office a little, come here early. And Shelly's up in the mountains with the rest of the ladies at the retreat. And so, uh, anyway, I woke up at uh, 7.30. That's eight hours of sleep. That's crazy for me. Um, so I got more sleep than usual. And I've been kind of racing along to catch up ever since. Stephen told you I'm sick today. I'm trying to stay out of the general population. That's for your benefit. Been uh, sick since about Tuesday. It started with a sore throat and a pounding headache. Oh, that headache lasted three days. I, I just wanted to die by morphine, truly. <clears throat> I couldn't sleep. I sat up in a chair to sleep for two nights. The achiness, the, and then the congestion. Um, anyway, we won't go into that kind of stuff, will we? No, we won't. The, uh, the benefit, though, <clears throat> of speaking when you're sick and everybody knowing you're sick is that it adds a layer of suspense. Don't you think? Like, will he make it? What kind of crazy things might happen? So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm building on that advantage, that, that anticipation. So uh, this morning, um, I want to just take a moment and acknowledge the Lord once again. Uh, we've received $95,495.18, and we just truly praise the Lord for that. Uh, that goes to... Uh, specifically over and above to our our building needs and uh, it, it 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 flies under the banner of ponder anew what the Almighty can do and we do praise him seems like the longer I walk with the Lord I've gotten better at this I wish I could say I was uh, of this uh, ilk all the time but I'm I just, I want to always, uh, it seems, give more attention to thanksgiving uh, when the Lord answers prayer, to try and make some kind of commensurate or equivalent or comparable acknowledgement of the Lord. I know that the people of Israel, when we read in the Old Testament, they might stop and stack stones and erect some kind of memorial to say, thank you, Lord. So what I would like to do is have a stand. Let me thank the Lord for where we are at. Will you stand with me? I'd like to pray. And if you'll join your heart with mine in one, with mine in one mind and one heart, I will thank the Lord for where he's brought us. Father, thank you. We praise you for uh, opening heaven in a way and giving us this outpouring of resources to what you've called us to do, where we're following. And we praise you and thank you. We acknowledge, Lord, that with the recent rains, this is an answer to our prayer. 
And with these gifts and tithes of, uh, of generosity and the goodness, this too uh, is an answer to our prayers. And that, Father, it's an indication of the many ways in which uh, we're covered by your grace and your goodness. And so we pause, Lord, to acknowledge you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, this morning we're in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, as we continue our series in the parables of Jesus, simple stories, daring truths. So if you have your Gospel of Matthew open to chapter 25, I'm going to read beginning at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It seems like every week I uh, catch a video. It might be uh, viewed through the network news or the local news. Or it might be through the internet. It might be not a viewing a video. It... It might be an account in the newspaper or in a blog or some kind of an uh, indication. Every time I cry, when I, I mean, I just, I, I get choked up when I see a homecoming of a soldier returning from the Middle East, from Afghanistan or Iraq. Well, Robbie, William, Robbie Robbins, he was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. After his 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts. 
and then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night. And when his buddies dropped him off at his driveway just after sunup, there was a big banner across the garage. Welcome home, Dad. Robbins wondered how they knew. I mean, he and his crew were surprised that they were going to be sent home. No one had called. Even he hadn't expected to come so quickly. And in his own words, he states, When I walked into the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy! Susan came running down the hall. She looked terrific hair fixed, makeup on, and a crisp yellow dress. How did you know, I asked. I didn't, she answered, through tears of joy. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. Once the war was over, we know, knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we wanted to be ready every day. That's a great line. And that really expresses a kind of the heart of how we should insinuate ourselves into this parable. This simple story is framed on the groom's delay. Without the delay, there would be no parable. It's crucial. It's the heart of this parable. The delay is exhibited in verse 5 in the drowsiness of the ten virgins who are maidens and part of the bride's wedding party. They all do a little sleeping. For the delay is not only unexpected, it's longer than expected. The delay is crucial because without the delay... As far as the narrative of the simple story goes, there wouldn't be a crisis at all. There wouldn't be foolish and wise virgins at all. There wouldn't be a parable. Jesus tells his disciples through this parable to expect a delay and be prepared. Be ready. Be alert. Be ever ready. When I was a youngster, I wanted to be a Cub Scout. I love those uniforms. I love a, you know, the old adage, you love a man in uniform. I really wanted to be a Cub Scout, but it just, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, folks didn't have the the funds, and for various reasons. I was crestfallen. I was heartbroken. So when I had a chance to join the Boy Scouts, I was there. Uh, I rose through the ranks. I could have been an Eagle Scout. I, I actually completed everything. But at that point, 
Um, I was about to enter high school, and I, this is so stupid. I shouldn't even be, this isn't important. I guess I'm just too much information, but at the time, um, and maybe this is what it's like for all of us at that point in life, I didn't want my picture in the newspaper. I didn't want my high school friends to know I was a Boy Scout. But you know what the motto of the Boy Scouts is? Be prepared. And that translates to me to be in a state of readiness. I took that pretty seriously, and it did. It just made me alert. It made me realize that as a scout, we're set apart because we're ready. You know, we, 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 we see things coming, and we're prepared. As an adult, I uh, was a minor in philosophy, and uh, I've read with interest existentialists. Existentialists, by and large, I don't know what the percentage is, I would say most. Kierkegaard is not an atheist. Kierkegaard was a Christian existentialist. He's often thought of as the father of existentialism, but most existentialists are atheists. And so they find meaning through anticipating their death. That is, they, so to speak, attune life to the meaningless of death because thereby one can discover meaning in existence through contemplating non-existence. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it works out this way. Live each day as if death is at hand. Live each day as if non-existence is upon you. Be prepared. Live in a state of readiness. Boy Scouts. Live each day as if death is at hand. Existentialists. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, live each day under the rule and the reign of God. Live each day as if God is your president, God is your mayor. Live each day as if you are a subject, not of this worldly kingdom, but you are a subject of his kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let him influence you. And just as we might think of kingdoms being distinguished by a culture and economics and a uniform and a language, I mean, if you travel to Europe today or you travel to South America, you travel to a foreign land, you enter a foreign culture, and there are distinctives and things that are different. And most of us born and raised in America or um, patriated to America, when we travel to a foreign country, uh, we note those distinctions, but we're so grateful to be American. 
because of its freedoms, its liberties, and its ideals, even though at times it falls far short. But if we were to switch allegiance and go to another country, we would have to adopt a different culture, a different language, a different economy. And that's what Jesus calls us to in the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus opens prominently with a message. Good news. I proclaim to you the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Good news. Repent and believe in God. His entire ministry was calling us to respond to his invitation to switch allegiance, to become fully impatriated to the king, the kingdom of God. And that means to live under his influence, put on his uniform, live by his standards, but they're so benevolent, good, gracious, and loving. And yet if we, if we do, then we're distinctive, you know? We can be identified, recognized. It's in our tone of voice. It's in our countenance. It's in the way we deal with things. Every one of Jesus' parables had something to say about the kingdom of God. And that's why this parable begins. The kingdom of God is like. That's how important it is for us to appreciate our allegiance to the reign of God in our lives. But it's also interesting because Jesus brought the kingdom he manifested it. He illustrated it. He demonstrated it. Not only in his conduct, his attitude, his teaching, but even in his miracles. He was counterculture. He was subversive. He divided people over the issue of being truly devoted to God. And then he died on a cross, horribly crucified. And the proclamation is that he rose after three days, that he lives. He ascended to the Father, glorified, God granted him the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to pour out on his people. To empower and equip them to live the kingdom of God on earth. But the kingdom is yet to come. Jewish people from the prophets you're reading in the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord, God is going to come. 
even Mary, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when there is the announcement of the birth of Jesus, they break out in prophetic, spirit-inspired speech. And they're describing God coming, God writing things. Writing in the sense of wrong to write. And establishing his presence and his reign. Now, when Jesus came preaching the kingdom, that's what the people expected. That's what we are waiting for in the return of Jesus. You see how these mesh, and it all is contingent, if you will, on a delay. The unique inauguration of Jesus' message, the kingdom of come, the kingdom of God is come, it is at hand, is yet to be consummated. It's yet to be fulfilled. We're waiting for it. And there's a delay. You know? There's a delay. It's interesting in this parable, this is a Jewish wedding. It's a Jewish marriage. Jewish marriage is primarily in two stages. You could actually say three. There's the contract, the consummation, and the celebration. But it begins with the contract or the betrothal. And once the betrothal is made, the young woman and the young man or man are pledged. And it is a legally binding relationship in which they're even referred to as husband and wife. The betrothal can only be broken by a writ of divorce. In other words, even if the entire sequence, the, you know, the contract, the consummation and the celebration, which go right together, consummation, celebration, that kind of two-stage, the contract, and then when the celebration is complete, the wedding is complete, even, even they, if they want a divorce, they have to go through the same writ of divorce process. It's a very sacred, somber thing. But there's something quite, quite striking about this because even though they live apart, the, the, the bride-to-be lives with her family at her home, and the groom will maybe live with his parents or he may be established by himself, but his, his job, so to speak, in approaching the wedding is to have everything ready, have a home for them to go to. And usually when the weddings occur, they make their way from the bride's home where she's been living with her parents to the groom's home where it is celebrated. The consummation often takes place at the bride's house before they leave for the groom's home. And then there's a, pro, a, a procession. It's a joyous procession. And they carry lamps and lights because it usually takes place. Not all, it's not required. It's not legal. But the first day of the Jewish day begins at sunset. So on this new day, they begin at sunset and the festivities carry into the evening and often last for days, sometimes an entire week. 
But during that time of separation where she lives at her parents' house and the husband is making preparations, they're faithful to one another. They're regarded as husband and wife. They remain faithful. And in a way, when we become followers of Jesus, it's, it's like a betrothal. I mean, the church even picks up on this imagery and calls the church the bride of Christ. It's like a betrothal. We're, we're, we're legally betrothed. And we're husband and wife. And we live in faithfulness. And while he's making preparations for a home, we're getting ready. We're, we're always ready for that day when he says everything's ready and he comes to receive us. It's a beautiful image. But in that in-between time, sometimes there's a delay and we still have to be ready. We still have to anticipate. There are a number of Jewish parables, by the way, some are quite moving, where betrothals are made, one from a king to a, to a, a, a noblewoman. Uh, he gives a, a grand dowry, and then he travels to a far country, and the years continue on. And the, and the village and the people, they mock her for, for staying faithful staying bound to this king. And she did so, it said, by constantly reading the marriage agreement because it communicated to her that faithfulness. And when he returned, of course, it was a grand occasion. Or the wife of a sailor who stayed adorned for his coming because she never knew when he was going to return home. And they're all aimed at the same thing. The idea of God establishing his kingdom. Jesus brings this close to hand. And here in this parable, as he's approaching Jerusalem, there's a series here in chapter 24 and 25 about being prepared, being ready. And he's arming his disciples with valuable information, particularly the information of this <clears throat> delay. This parable is very selective. I wish it answered all the questions that I have because some of the details are not provided that we would desire. Our knowledge of first century weddings uh, is kind of spotty and we're dependent for it. You can't just pick, I mean, you can pick up a dictionary, but the scholars who write the dictionaries and encyclopedias, where do they get their information we have to look at ancient documents themselves, and they're, they're pretty sparse in this regard, and we know that weddings varied from region to region. There's something interesting I wa do want to provide here, and that is, is that there's a document from the first century, a Jewish document. It's called 4th Ezra or 2nd Esdras, and uh, in this document, the prophet... <clears throat> comes upon a mourning woman, mourning, not like an early riser, but weeping. She's alone in a very remote spot, and he's traveling, and he spots her, and he comes to her, and he asks her why she's in this condition. She has no desire for life. 
She's so broken. She tells a story of her own marriage, but that she couldn't have a child. And after many, many years of marriage, very much like Hannah in, Second Sam, in Samuel, um, God answers her pleas for a child, and she has a, a boy. And the whole village is celebrating. She and her husband rear the boy. And at, <clears throat> at 30, she acquires him a wife. And on the wedding, and that we wish we had more details, but it's interesting. She says that as he was entering the wedding chamber, he fell and died. And she adds, everyone put out their lamps. Everyone had a lamp because lights filled the house, carried them in the procession. It was a symbol of the joy, but when they put them out, it was a somber expression of the grief of death. We're to be ever ready, and Jesus connects readiness to having oil for our lamps. To be ever ready, look to the end in all your beginnings. Makes a lot of sense. It's good to do advanced planning, isn't it? But what's interesting here is that when you, when you listen to the parable and you, you listen to it carefully, if there hadn't been a delay, there would have been no foolish virgins. But the delay highlights the fact that five virgins were wise. They took precautions. They prepared. They anticipated but what's also striking is that when we read the parable, and this is expected, this is natural, it draws you in. Who do you identify with? Well, you want to be one of the wise virgins. You identify with them. But when you step out of the story, We're stripped of our identity as a wise virgin and we're forced to evaluate whether we have enough oil. And we must ask ourselves, are we wise or are we foolish? We want to be among those who are prepared. But we can't escape if we're human, if we're sensitive, if we're thoughtful, if we care at all, if we're honest. I mean, even pastors do this. I, you, by the way, I, I, I never feel worthy enough. But my worthiness is not the same as my acceptance. I'm accepted on the basis of God's love and grace in Jesus Christ. And yet there's a tension there. Don't you find that? When you, when you walk the walk... There's that tension between saint and sinner. Isn't there? There's that tension between the joy of knowing we're accepted. Not on the 
strength of our accomplishments or performance, but on the strength of his love demonstrated in the outpouring of Jesus' life for us. The way you solve the tension between grace, which can be elating, and that guilt of, you know what, I'm not really doing enough, is relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you resolve that. You don't resolve it just theologically. You resolve it through living the real faith relationship with Jesus Christ and putting your eyes on him, on really walking with him in a day-to-day experience. I don't always, uh, well, I didn't, I tweet. I don't always tweet, but I definitely don't tweet when I'm sick. I just don't feel like it. But I did tweet while I was working on this sermon. And I, I tweeted, I like the word curtsy. I know when I think of curtsy, I think of like uh, 13th, 14th century France, you know, the, all the adorned nobles. And when they come in before the king, you know, the man and the woman, you know, she does her thing and the man, he does his thing. But I, I just kind of captured the spirit of how I feel about Jesus because I curtsy before Christ. And at that moment, when I curtsy, at that moment, I experience a sacredness. That moment becomes sacred. And it's filled with love and grace. In a bow, I'm transformed. And that can happen anywhere, anytime, any place. When I acknowledge him. And that can be true for you. You can find your own language to express it. I can be upset with someone. You know, kind of on my heels. Not uh, kind of out of whack. Out of my Christian disposition by something said or done. And I regain my balance, that grace and love, when I curtsy before Christ. Because in that moment, I'm transformed. I can be in a heated uh, disagreement with Shelley, feel offended, insulted, wrong. But when I curtsy before Christ, I, I get my footing. That's how... I understand, and that's my kind of practical translation or interpretation if you're asking, how do I live in a, in a readiness, in a watchfulness? You've got to find your own way to put it into words, your own experience, but that's the way I'm looking to the end because Jesus is not only the end, he is the all, and he's coming again. And in this delay, what makes me precautious, I don't know if that's a word, but it sounds just really good to me right now. To make the precautions we need to make, 
We've got to have our eyes on him. And when I put my eyes on him, if I acknowledge he is the king, he's the one bringing the kingdom, then I've got a curtsy. And that's not just something that's perfunctory, which means mechanical or rote or without feeling or heart. It's a disposition of acknowledgement. And it's easier and easier to do as you realize he's the king of grace and love. He's the king of goodness and righteousness. And if you'll trust him, you'll be ready. Readiness is an attitude, a commitment, a lifestyle. In this parable, they both want to meet the bridegroom, but five took precautions because there was maybe a, an extra gut check about what it would take to be ready when he comes. Readiness is an exercise in individual responsibility. You know, the difference between the foolish and wise virgins was one, responsibility. The wise had oil, the foolish didn't. The wise had the opportunity to get oil and did. The foolish had opportunity and did not. How did the foolish virgins react? This is interesting. They shouted. I know it isn't translated shouted. It isn't there. But when you read what they're saying, they're shouting. Give us some of your oil. Lord, Lord, open the door. That's foolish. As foolish and stupid as being unprepared in the first place. In the world, in the church, Kenneth Bailey says, barking orders at others is not an acceptable way to solve problems created by your own lack of responsibility. This isn't about good and bad people. It's about wise people. I see shouting in this as an illustration of the fact that in the end, they want someone else to save them, to fix this. There is a part of living the Christian life which is the exercise of faith. The exercise of faith. The exercise of faith. And that means thinking about him, letting his heart influence your heart in any given... Do you know Jesus? You do. I know you do. You read, his, you read his teachings. You know what he's like. There's a Jesus character, a Jesus quality about the Holy Spirit who's prompting us. But a lot of times, we just don't do it. I know because I've denied it. I've said, hey, you know what? Really trusting you like that makes me uncomfortable. That could embarrass me. Or loving that person who's so unlovable, that's, that's above my pay scale. You're not going to ask me to do that. No, because in the end, I'm saved. I've got eternal security, so I'm just going to walk away from it. Well, I'm not the judge, but that's just plain wrong. And it, for one, should increase the realization of God's 
fantastic grace that he does cover that kind of stubbornness and stupidness and folly. But on the other hand, that grace should prompt us to respond to him differently the next time. That's how faith grows. You step out and trust him. You put him to the test. You say, your love, does it really work? I'm going to do it. I'm going to love like you love and see what happens. I'm going to live like you live and see what happens. Does that make sense? This is about being wise. And I think the church could be revived if we were wise in faith, which is really about being smart about trusting Jesus. It should go without saying. Comedian Louis C.K., I don't know if you know him. I read about him in a blog. I had seen him. He, he can be very funny. I think he can be pretty caustic too. But in the blog by David Zoll, he's quoted, and I just want to share this quote. I have a lot of beliefs, C.K. says. I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of the thing I want, I just do what I want to do. I don't want to be like that. We're not dealing with real handheld lamps and oil. But I got to tell you, that kind of thinking is pure folly. And thirdly, when it's time to be ready, it's too late to get ready. Boy, you know, when we're caught off guard, we want some kind of an exception. In fact, there's information on the culture that when the door was locked, the final of the wedding party got in there, uh, they wouldn't admit anyone else. And the old, I don't know you. Well, they know who they are, but it would be an expression to ward people off. Will Willman, I'm going to close with this. He's been a, a bishop in the United Methodist Church, but he's, he's known primarily, this is how I knew him through his writings. He's a preacher of preachers, a professor of the practice of Christian ministry at Duke Divinity School. In uh, the writing on the wall, he uh, tells about an early time in his ministry he writes, I served a little church in rural Georgia. One Saturday, we went to a funeral in a little country church, not of my denomination. I grew up in a big downtown church. I'd never been to a funeral like this one. The casket was open, and the funeral consisted of a sermon by their preacher. The preacher pounded on the pulpit and looked at the casket. He said, it's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that. But Joe's dead now. It's too late for him. But if it's not too late for you, what are you going to do? There's still time for you. You still can decide. You are still alive. 
It is not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. Then the preacher told how a Greyhound bus had run into a funeral procession once on the way to the cemetery. And that could happen today. He said, you should decide today. Today is the day to get your life together. Too late for old Joe. But it's not too late for you. Will Willman says, I was so angry at that preacher. On the way home, I told my wife, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and insensitive to that poor family? I found it disgusting. His wife replied, I've never heard anything like that. It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. Worst of all, it was true. 2 Peter 3.9 says, get a clue, people. Just because the Lord hasn't come back yet, don't think for a minute that he won't. The Lord isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not know, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Be ever ready. It's done incrementally. A moment at a time, an hour at a time, a day at a time. But there are so many wonderful rewards. Your lamp is always lit. And there's entrance to the wedding celebration. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, he speaks to us in individual and tailored ways. If you would like to pray with one of the pastoral staff or elders or their wives, we invite you to come. I'm not going to be there, so uh, I don't want to. I want to contaminate you in spiritual, not physical ways. Let me pray for us. As we close, gracious Heavenly Father, ah, draw us to you. May we love you with a yearning, a longing. May we know your countenance, the beauty of your presence, the divine wisdom of your instruction, and the fruit in our lives as people of your kingdom that is a source of great rejoicing and an attraction to the world around us. Lord, we love you. We commit our lives to you as we are able today. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, God bless you.